So we have been working our way fairly slowly through Romans chapter 12, and uh, we've called this sermon series Contrast Culture, and we finished it up today. Um, and the, the gist of this chapter is that our focus on Christ, or our worship of Christ, would be another way to say it, is forming us into a healthy church. And a healthy church uh, is a unified church because they're unified in their worship of Jesus. And that unifying in the worship of Jesus uh, produces this diversified, gifted, called group of people that are loving each other well and they're serving each other well. That's, that's the gist of what we've been through so far. And Noah preached last week, uh, excellent sermon if you haven't listened to it. It's uh, on our website on SoundCloud. But he preached about the service part, right? That we're loving and that we're, we're serving one another with the use of our gifts that we've been given by God. And that really, I mean, that sounds amazing. Does it not like a unified, diversified group that's loving and serving? Uh, and it is amazing. And uh, it, it, it has a lot of challenges that go with it, though, right? And uh, one of the challenges is that this all has to be lived out in a fallen world among a fallen people. And, and so what we read here in Romans 12, it, it's, it's not utopia. Like, like Paul is, yes, an optimist, and he's, he, he gives us a really high vision of what the church can be, but he's an idealist. Like he, he's a realist as well, right? He, he is being honest about some of the challenges that we face in church life. And this passage that was just read really gets into the, 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 the details of some of the challenges of church life. Um, it, it is summed up with this idea of overcoming evil with good, right? That the church is to be overcoming evil, and, and that includes evil within ourselves, evil within the church, evil within the world. So again, this is not a utopian vision of some, some perfect um, fellowship that's living in a perfect world. It's, it's not that at all. And uh, definitely because of this passage, uh, we are, are told that it's not. Now let's talk about evil for a minute. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think we need to define that because when we use evil in our current culture, we're talking about like Hitler. You know, it, it, it has a category that's like way away from any of us good civil people here, right? Uh, that's really not how the Bible uses it. Um, evil is really a, a lack of something or a disordering of something that is inconsistent with God, with God's order, with God's truth, with God's beauty, with God's ways. Anything that's out of that order is evil. And anything that's inside that order is good. So these are the ways that Paul is using these terms of evil and good, and, and how we overcome evil, uh, it's interesting there's some bookends around this passage that was just read that really say the same thing, they just say it in a different way. So in verse 14, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And then in 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And so there's this vision that you could overcome evil, as, as I just described, by trusting in the goodness of God to both overcome the evil in me, but then also overcome the evil in the church and in the world. That somehow the goodness of God could be released in such a way that we could be changed, transformed, and become agents of transformation in the church and in the world. Um, this, this would include bringing goodness, the goodness of God, to bear on ourselves, on each other, on evil people, on evil groups, on evil neighborhoods, on evil societies, on the evil world. Right? It's, it's not just about the individual. It also includes bringing goodness of God to neighborhoods and societies and groups and states and countries. Um, we had um, a golden retriever when the kids were growing up named Buddy, which I think 99% of all dogs are named Buddy. So I don't know if you knew that. But, um, and when Buddy was, a, was a, 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 a puppy... And I think I have a picture of Buddy. This is with one of our children. I'll let you, um, you know, guess who, who it is. Um, but uh, uh, Buddy, you know, was a, a, not the smartest dog, okay? And so we left Buddy in the mudroom, which is sort of like just this entry, entry room in our house. And uh, he is a puppy, and we, we, we went somewhere for a few hours. We came back, and I mean the mudroom was complete chaos. That dog had gotten a hold of one of the kids' coats, which was full of, you know, some kind of stuffing, and had ripped that coat to shreds, and all the stuffing was just spread all over the mudroom. But not only that, uh, he had chewed on the woodwork around the windows and around the doorframe and was trying to get out of the mudroom, right? And it was complete chaos. That's evil. That's evil, right? Something that was in order that is now in disorder, right? And, and bringing the goodness of God to bear on evil disorder brings these things back into order. We did clean up the mudroom, right? We gathered up the stuffing, put it in the trash can. Uh, we replaced and repainted the wood eventually. Uh, we did restore that mudroom mud to its original order. And that original order was good, and it was the norm, and it was natural. Just like God's goodness is the norm, it is the natural, which is really hard for us to even conceive of. That God's ways, His truth, His order is the norm. It is the standard. It, it, is, it is what is uh, good. Um, I was having a, a conversation with somebody in our, our family who was just lamenting over the New England fall and how much they missed the New England fall. Because this is where our kids grew up, right? It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, here's, here's a picture of one of the, one of the areas near uh, where we live. And, 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 it, and that's, not, that's, that's not doctored up. Like, that, that's not some sort of insta-filter here. This is the real deal. And this was like in our backyard, right? And so growing up in that kind of beauty and the fall is so, so gorgeous. Like, uh, I mean, Josias is here from Boston, and, and he, he has seen it with his own eyes, right? 
Now, my experience was different than our kids' experience, right? My experience was I came from Texas where it's 100 degrees in the fall and you've got a few trees, but not a lot. And then we moved to Massachusetts in the first fall. I thought I was in a postcard. I was like, is this real? And I'm serious. It probably took me 10 falls to finally start to feel like, this is where I live. This, this is normal, right? And so it, it, very similar to that, um, we, we, we don't know the beauty of God's order, the truth that, that he brings, the, 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 the life that he brings. And it, it's, it's so far removed from our experience that we struggle to, to think that is the norm. That is what is true. That is what is good, right? Uh, this past August, my wife and I celebrated 30 years of marriage, right? And when you talk to people and they're like, oh, you're married? Yeah, yeah. How long have you been married? 30 years. What? No, that's just normal, okay? This, this is God's norm. You get married, you stay married until you die, right? This is the norm, but it's not, is it, right? We, we live in a world where that's, that's not the norm. And so, again, it's, it's hard for us to envision God's ways, God's truth, God's beauty as the norm, right? But that's what's good. That is what is the norm. That is what is the standard. Um, I mean, why does the overeater go back to the chocolate cake, right? Why does the procrastinator put off the paper Again, right? Why, why does the person in debt keep running to the credit card? Again, why does the sexually addicted keep hitting the porn site? Why, why does the, the depressed person keep staying in their room and closing the shades? Why does the victim of the abuser go back to the abuser? Why does the struggling married couple keep going back into the old patterns? Partly because we can't conceive that life could be any different. We just can't conceive it. We're sitting in 100-degree heat in Texas. We don't even know that there is a New England fall. Right? We don't. But there is. <laughs> there is a goodness of God that we're being invited into. Now, I think this, one of the silver linings is, is because there's such a disparity between the evil world and the goodness of God is that the goodness of God really stands out. 30-year marriages really stand out, right? People who really love each other well, it really stands out. And so this is where the contrast culture idea comes from, right? It's like the church experiencing the goodness of God, not in its perfection, of course. Like we're, we're a work in progress as individuals, as a community, but, but we can stand out. We can be a contrast culture as the goodness of God works its way out in our lives, in our community. So, how do we do that? Right? I mean, again, we're still up here. Like, it's like, oh, that sounds so good, and I'd love to be a part of that. How do I do it? And I think this passage gives us some pretty good handles on how to do it. And it's really challenging. All right? So there's at least three things in here. There's probably more, but every sermon has three points, so, you know, got to have three points. Um, so three things, humble ourselves, refuse revenge, and love our enemies. 
These are, these are three ways that goodness can overcome evil. Humble ourselves, refuse revenge, and love our enemies. So we overcome evil by humbling ourselves. So uh, verses 15, 16, we just heard this read. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, first glance, you know, it just seems like a little bit of a laundry list of like this, 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 this. I actually think there's a theme in this couple of verses, and I think it's humility. And humility is a right view of yourself in light of who God is, who I am, and who others are, right? We don't think too highly of ourselves. We don't think too lowly of ourselves. We think rightly about ourselves. That is true humility. And this is always a work in progress, right? Always a work in progress. I mean, you just, if you think about humility as like the sort of, sort of the x-axis, and I mean, we're just like up and down, 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 right? But, but Christ, by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, is, is working on us to get to that humility line, right? And there's some things that come that are fruits of that kind of humble heart. So one is a humble person is able to express emotional attunement. I talked about this a few weeks ago. So that's a term that family marriage counselors talk about, uh, other, other counselors as well. Um, and, and it's beautifully displayed in this verse, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so you're able to attune yourself to the other person because you're humble. If you think too lowly of yourself and always think of yourself as needy and therefore needing attention, you can't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because you need the attention. You can't attune to the other person. Um, If if you think you're better than everyone else, which is what he addresses later in this passage, uh, we, we can't attune ourselves to other people because we are wanting to be acknowledged as better. And so we can't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But if we're humble, we can. We can, we can attune ourselves. Um, similarly, humble people can interact with all types of people. All types of people. He says, do not be haughty. So that's the opposite of humble. Um, but associate with the lowly. And I think this, this would, uh, uh, you know, it, it would apply to both uh, the, those that you might think are higher than you or lower than you, right? So you, if you're humble, you can associate with those who are higher than you because you don't despise them for being higher than you. Uh, you are not afraid of them because they're higher than you. You don't try to manipulate them to give you something because they're higher than you. If you're humble, you can love those that are seemingly higher than you. You can rejoice with them. You can weep with them. The same is, is true with those that are seemingly lower than you, right? You can acknowledge them as having dignity and worth because they're creations of God. And if they have less money than you or less education than you or less whatever it is that you're gauging them as quote-unquote lowly, you can see the dignity and the worth of that person. And in, in your humility, you can rejoice with them. You can... Weep 
with them. Something that was really important to me in our previous church is that we really loved well the handful of people that came into our church who were severely mentally ill. And we had a handful. And they, one in particular was there most, almost every week. And her name was Kim. And Kim was schizophrenic, um, really, really severely mentally ill. And if she was on the meds, she was okay. If she was off the meds, she was not okay. And she was usually not on the meds. And so she would come in, couldn't make eye contact, was, was usually doing some kind of uh, fidgeting and saying some weird things. And I would just go over to her and I'd say, hey, Kim. And, I, and I'd get in, in front of her and get some eye contact. And she would just kind of brighten up. And I'd say, how are you doing? How is your week? And we'd have like a real conversation. And then I would see somebody walking by and I would go, hey, have you met Kim yet? Let, let me introduce you. Come over here. Hey, Bob, this is Kim. Right? And it was just this moment of like dignity right, for her. And you could just kind of see her shoulders kind of lift up and her eyes start to meet the eyes of the other person. Right? And it's, 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 it's a little snapshot of what should happen in the church with people of all kinds that are coming in and are being treated with humility. They're being rejoiced with. They're being wept with. And it, it creates this contrast culture that is so, so powerful. Uh, humble people also don't look at the world through the lens of I'm always right. Right? It says, never be wise in your own sight. <laughs> now, we got to admit, most of us, that's our default, myself included. Like, if I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't hold this opinion, right? So, of course it's right. And he's like, don't do that. This is partly, again, why I think this passage is about humility. <laughs> he's, he's like, never, never be wise in your own eyes. And one of the things that's been really encouraging to me uh, about the, the, the folks that have been a part of this church so far is when they've approached me with an opinion or a preference, they're very aware that it's an opinion or a preference. <laughs> and, and they'll state that outright and say, hey, I have these thoughts about how we might do the church. Here's some ideas. This is just my preference. This is just my opinion. And they have, a, have had a very clear vision of like what is like in the Bible and we must do this. And what is my opinion and my preference? And it, it, it's so refreshing as a pastor. Because that's not always what the conversations have been like as a pastor. And it has often been a preference that's been used in a way that's like, this is the way God would do it. Right? And you're like, that, that is not humble. <laughs> and so this, this ability to not think my way is always the right way. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't hold to convictions. There are things in Scripture that we believe to be true, and they're true at all times, and for all people in all places, we hold on to those really tightly. But other things, we're open-handed. Right? And that is, is a humility. Um, but not only do we overcome evil by humbling ourselves, we overcome evil by refusing to take revenge. Right? Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave to it the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He says it twice in that section. Christians never repay evil with more evil. He says it in different ways, but he's saying it twice. So it must be pretty important. They never repay evil with more evil. Now what that doesn't mean is that there isn't a place for correction or justice, right? There is. And there's a proper response to certain kinds of evil And that proper response has been given to us inside institutions that God has ordained. So God has ordained three institutions. The family, the church, and the government. Doesn't mean those are perfect. Doesn't mean that they don't do evil things. It doesn't mean that. But but these are institutions ordained by God. The family, the church, and uh, the government. And so... It is proper and it is inside God's order to appeal to these institutions and situations that are evil, right? So here's an example. So let's say I'm a Ridgetop Church children's worker and I have a child that's in in my class and they are punching and kicking other children. That's evil. Right? That's evil. That's outside of God's order. God doesn't want children kicking and punching uh, other children. Um, so what do I do? Well, I, I appeal to the child's parent. I go to the institution number one, right? And I say, hey, your, your kid, this would never happen in Ridgetop Church. The kids here, they're never going to behave this way. But let's just say, you know, theoretically. And we have to appeal to the parent. Like, hey, this is happening. Would you please do something about it? And they do something about it, right? And so we've appealed to the institution of the family. Everything's cool. Let's say the parents like, don't do anything about it. Kid keeps kicking and punching. Now what? We appeal to the church, right? We appeal to the elders, right? Might pull an elder aside and say, hey, uh, this kid is behaving in this way. It's hurting the other kids. Like another kid, one of the kids like decided not to come back to church because of this behavior. Like, I need some help. And then the elder, in a very shepherding, pastoral way, says, hey, family, I'd like to come by this week and have a chat. I know we've had some behavioral problems, and we just want to have a, a conversation, and then they have a conversation. Right? And so it's, a, it's an institution, right? It's an order. It, it's, a, it's a way in which we would engage with something that is outside of God's disorder, outside of his order, but it's given to us by God. But what if the child says, hey, my, my, my parents are abusing me. And they've got a black eye and they've got bruises on the backs of their legs. Then we're going to call the police. We're going to call the police. Now we're appealing to another authority, another institution that God has given us. Right? And yes, we're going to let the elders know. And the church is going to be a part of that process. But, but, but there's going to be an order to it. It's not going to be, I'm going to find that parent and I'm going to punch him. Right? No, that would be responding to evil with more evil. 
And so again, this doesn't mean that we don't address evil, but we do so inside God's order. I think what the Apostle Paul is talking about is probably lesser evils. Evils that don't require appealing to the institutions given to us by God. Um, these evils might be being hurt by someone's comment or their action or their inaction, being gossiped about, being taken advantage of, being overlooked, being unfairly treated. That's the kind of evils that we're talking about. I think most of us would say, well, I would never take revenge on someone for that kind of stuff. Uh, We have these, like, acceptable, socially acceptable ways that we take revenge. Like, we freeze people out relationally. We vent about the person to others. That's also known as gossip. We overlook them. They don't quite get the invite. They're not in the text thread anymore for the activities, for the parties. We're just not going to deal with that, right? We might even treat them unfairly. If we've got power over some resources or some access to power, we're like, yeah, they had their chance. I'm going to make sure I I, I, I bring these resources to bear in a way that, that treats them unfairly. And this happens in the church. And I know, because I've done it, and I've had it done to me. I've done it, and I've had it done to me. Now, this is the, the kind of reality that we have to face inside the church, <laughs> is that we're evil, and God is in the process of making us good. Right? And so these, these verses are not just for the bad old world out there. He's talking to the church. This whole chapter is addressed to the church of God. And we're just so tempted (laughs) to just say, well, that's on them, man. They had their chance. But that's revenge. That's revenge. It's a soft revenge. It's a passive-aggressive revenge. But make no mistake, it is revenge. And what Paul teaches here is that in a wise way, we move toward people who have hurt us. We move toward them. We bless those who persecute us. And blessing means take action, right? It's not like bless your heart and then move on. It's like actually taking some kind of concrete action. But I'm getting ahead of myself because this is really point three. So we'll set that aside. And then let's talk about this point some more. Number two, uh, as Christians, we're uniquely equipped to bless our enemies. We really, we really are. And you may think, oh, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, because we've been so blessed by the gracious God that we can give grace to others. Absolutely. That is part of why we can pull this off, is that God has blessed us and we can bless others. And you see that in some of Paul's writings, like Ephesians 4, where he's saying, Forgive as the Lord forgave you, right? So forgive that person that's hurt you because God first forgave you. Make total sense. That's not what the Apostle Paul mentions here in this particular passage. Look what he mentions. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
So this is a new truth here that helps us stay in the game of overcoming evil with good. God is not one to turn a blind eye to injustice. God is not one to turn a blind eye to evil. Yes, he is full of mercy. Yes, he forgives. And, and, and that is absolutely true. But he is also just. And a just God enables us to never repay evil with evil. And, and this, like, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, kind of truth is really helpful when evil is not repenting. Right? It's one thing when you, like, move toward people and you move toward systems or you move toward a neighborhood or whatever you're moving toward with the goodness of God and they go, man, God's awesome, and they repent and they become followers of Jesus. That's what we want to see. That is not always what happens. Nor does it always happen inside the church. When you move towards someone who's hurt you, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to move toward them in the goodness of God. It doesn't always pan out. And, and so what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is that one of the ways you stay in this overcome evil with good game is that you are reminded that at the end of all days, God will make things all right. He will judge evil. And he will do it justly. He will not overcome evil with another set of evil. <laughs> he will overcome evil with his goodness. And part of his goodness is his justice, is his judgment. And so Paul's like, let God take care of that. Yes, of course, appeal to institutions. Those have been given to us by God. Oftentimes that can be helpful. But we all know those institutions fail us. And and oftentimes we just have to say, God, you're the just judge. I'm going to turn this system, this person, this world over to you. And I'm going to trust you to take care of it. And to judge evil in a proper way. In our culture, we try to get around evil by speaking therapeutically or systemically. Um, you know, let's say we look at prison statistics and we chalk it up to father wounds uh, or bad schools or bad police officers or bad judges. All that is true to some degree, right? But is that the only explanation for evil? No, of course not, right? There, there's, a, there's a deeper truth and an understanding of evil. And I think... What's hard for our culture right now is when we look in the face of evil, like stare it in the eyes, like Ukrainian civilians being totally just, just killed by the thousands by a crazy dictator. That's evil, right? Um, when we see sex slaves that are being kidnapped and raped and forced into prostitution, it, it, it's evil. When we see the life savings of elderly people being scammed out from underneath them. That is evil. Uh, or uh, even in our own personal lives, unrepentant family who have maybe perpetrated abuse against us. And they've been brought to justice or they've, and they're still unrepentant. 
about what they perpetrated. And so there are, there are times when we stare that evil in the face and we have to say, God, you're going to have to take care of that. Right? And yes, we, we seek to overcome evil with good at, at all, in all kinds of ways and in some really difficult ways. But we're only going to be able to remain in that mindset if we also know God is going to judge justly. And so, yes, we overcome evil with good because we've been given good, but also because we believe in the perfect justice of God. This kind of stuff's all over the Bible. We try to, like, mark it out and kind of throw it out. Uh, Psalm 7 was in my readings this week. You know, this is a lovely, lovely quiet time in the morning, devotional prayer time. Uh, Psalm 7 says, If a man does not repent... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. There's an image for you. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. And then he says this, I will give Thanks to the Lord, the thanks do his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. So he's praising God for his just vengeance. Now partly, you, what you, you see in the passage like this is that the person writing that is not going out and taking vengeance. He's entrusting that situation, that person, that country, that whatever it is that he's concerned about. He's entrusting that to God to do what's right. And so not only do we overcome evil by humbling ourselves, refusing revenge, but the third point is we overcome evil by loving our enemy. Now this really gets in the active role of, of being an overcomer of evil. We aren't just humble. We aren't just refusing revenge. We're moving toward, like I said before, the evil person, we're moving toward the group, the neighborhood, the society, and we actually do something to bring goodness to bear on the evil people, evil groups, evil systems. And so he says in verse 20, to the contrary, right? To the contrary of what? To the contrary of taking vengeance, he's like, don't do that, but don't just don't do that, do this to the contrary. Right? And then he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So he says, you don't just don't take vengeance. You actually meet the tangible needs of your quote-unquote enemy. And, and I, you know, I'm saying an enemy is someone who's hurt you. Someone who's taken something from you. Something that, someone who's mistreated you. And you want to bring some vengeance down. <laughs> and he's saying, no, 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 Christian, this is what you do. You, you, you bless them. You see they have a need, you meet the need. And instead, I think what kind of rises up in me, my enemy is hungry. I go, well, too bad for you. You should have thought of that before you hurt me. And this passage is saying, no, you should feed them. They're hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give her something to drink. You see the need? 
meet the need. Enemy needs a ride? Give them a ride. Enemy needs money? Give her some money. Enemy has a need? Seek to meet his need. It's active. <laughs> this blessing of the enemy. You know, when we planted in uh, our, our church in Massachusetts, they were not rolling out the red carpet to the local Baptist, you know, church planter. In fact, the town was ideologically hostile to the gospel, to anything that had anything to do with Christian truth. But they needed volunteers for town events. And so we're like, we'll do it. They needed volunteers, I remember this was early on in the plant, to clean out this really nasty office that was going to be the Chamber of Commerce office in the town. And there was really heavy stuff and it had to be brought upstairs. And they were like, would anyone like to volunteer? We're like, we will. And we spent a Saturday cleaning out that office. They needed an early morning, pre-dawn, Saturday setup crew for the art show. And so we dragged ourselves out of bed and went out in the streets in Amherst downtown and we set up these stupid tents so that they could have an art show. And then Sunday evening, afternoon, we were so tired from Sunday, we went and we broke those things down and we put them on the trailer. <laughs> and those kinds of things opened up relationship with people in the town. And a lot of them, they knew where we were coming from. They could, they could get on our website. They, they, could re, they could listen to the podcast. But they were, they were watching us serve in ways that opened up relationship with them. We're going to have to do the same thing here. They're not knocking the doors down. I don't know if you noticed. You know, like, oh, new church in town. We're all coming. Awesome. No. They're not. And part of it is because of what we stand for and believing in what's in this book, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing everyone needs that and needs to respond to it in faith. That's really offensive. But it means we're going to have to bless our quote-unquote enemies. right? We're going to have to see the need, meet the need, whether it's at elementary school or at the Hyde Park Neighborhood Association or folks around, the, you know, just in the neighborhood that we find out they need something, we're just going to have to step in there and do it. And it, it's going to build some bridges that will eventually be used by God. Now, I think it's more powerful when you're blessing a person who's actually hurt you. <laughs> and and this, this is so difficult, right? And through the years, Melanie and I have often found ourselves bringing meals to people giving gifts, grieving with, celebrating with people who have hurt us. And it's difficult. Um, but this kind of experience happens when you are a member of a local church and you commit to it. And it's like marriage. <laughs> you enter into a covenant together as a local church. And you say... I'm married to these people in this church and I'm going to do whatever it takes to continue to be in relationship with each other in a God-honoring way. And if you hurt me, 
I'm going to move toward you. That, that's what this kind of local church kind of thing that Paul is describing here in Romans 12 looks like. You're in a covenant and it requires you to move toward each other because there's nowhere to go. This is, this is, I mean, this is what marriage is like, right? You, you, you hurt each other and you're like, I'm out of here. Oh, wait a minute. We're married. Um, we're going to move back toward each other. And we're going to forgive each other and we're going to reconcile. It's the church the same way. You're like, I'm so mad at you. You hurt me. I'm out of here. Ah. No, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. Unless you're going to act like most of the American church right now, which just kind of hops around from church to church. Oh, you hurt me? I'm out of here. I'm going to a different church. Or you just give up on church altogether. It's like, it's not worth it. That church, those people are all sinners. Yeah, you are too. This is why God creates a covenant community. He's like, okay, sinners, I'm going to throw you in here. I'm going to give you grace and the Holy Spirit. Work it out. Grow in that grace. Grow in the power of the Spirit. And become a contrasting culture that the rest of the world looks in and goes, you're not perfect, but there's something going on here. And it must have something to do with the goodness of God. Right? That, that is what God is wanting to do in the local church. Because if we do the whole, like, you hurt me, I'm out, we just look like the world. Because that's what the world does. Right? The way you do friendships in the world, you have affinity for people, you have common interests, you enjoy them, and you, you hang out for a couple of years, and then someone hurts you, and you're like, I'm out, and I'm going to go find some more. I'll find some other people that have affinity for the same things that I like. Church puts you in this group where you don't, you don't have affinity with everybody except for Jesus. And you press in, and you move toward, even when it's, when it's difficult. And you become a contrasting culture. Uh, years ago, I got, got this email from a young couple in, in the church where we were serving. And they were like, we're leaving the church. And the reason we're leaving is because God has told us we're leaving the church. And I also knew that they were disappointed because I'd had convers earlier conversations with them. They were disappointed in the church. They'd been hurt by the church. They were isolated, felt isolated in the church. They were angry about some things in the church. And so I'm like, God told you? Hmm, I'm, I'm kind of suspicious of that. So let's, let's meet up. And so we met and we talked. And, and, and I, you know, heard some of the hurt, some of the disappointment. And I just, I said, um, you know, I, I can't force you to stay in the church. Like, if, if you want to leave, you can leave but I am going to tell the congregation and we're having a congregational meeting in two days and I'm going to tell them then that you want to leave the church because when I asked them where they were going, they said, well, we don't know where we're going. I said, so God told you to leave your church and then go nowhere. Is that right? When people are telling me God's telling things that don't really seem consistent with the Bible, I'm, again, I'm suspicious. And so I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the congregation and I'm going to ask the congregation to reach out to you and, and to talk with you and try to reconcile with you and try to encourage you to stay committed. And they're like, no, you, no, you don't do that. No, don't do that. And, and, and I was like, no, this is a divorce. You want a divorce. You joined this church and you, you married this church. And now you want to leave it. It is a divorce. And we're going to fight for this. 
right? And yeah, after a month, we're going to let you go. We're not, not going to force you to stay in our church. And they said, could you hold off on announcing that at church on Sunday? I'm like, yep. And so a week later, they reach out to me, and they say, we want to stay. And it wasn't like, Pastor Robert, you know, he forced us to stay and we had to stay. It was like, no, we thought through this, and we thought about what you said about the whole divorce marriage thing and about this covenant that we're in, and we want to stay. You ready for that? Because that, that's, that's the kind of covenant making we're going to be making in a few weeks on October 22nd when I hope all of you come to membership class and we talk through the basics of the church and we all say we're, we're going to be a covenant family together around these beliefs and this vision. And is it going to be hard some days? Absolutely, it's going to be hard some days. Are we going to hurt each other? Yes. <laughs> but we can move toward each other. Not just not take revenge on each other. We can move toward each other because we're in this covenant by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it may feel, at first glance, you think, like it's like God's like the big CEO in the top and he's just handing down directives to the employees and then the employees have to just figure it out and it's really hard. That is not at all what this is like. Because God the Son became a human being and He came down <laughs> into this world that is thoroughly affected by sin. And He humbled Himself. <laughs> and He refused to take revenge, rightful revenge, on sinners. Like you and me. And instead of not, just not taking revenge, He loved those that were enemies against him, which is every human being before they become a Christian. It's the way that the Bible describes pre-Christians were enemies of God. And while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us to forgive us of our sins. And he moved toward us, hostiles, <laughs> and gave us the grace and mercy that came at an infinite cost of his death on the cross. So, so Jesus did that for us so that we would have a foundation to stand on to then do that for each other and to do that for those who are in the world. And it is an overflow of the goodness of God that's been given to us at the cross. Th this is why we can stand here and say, yes, we can overcome evil with good. It's because the evil within us and even within our community has, has been dealt with at the cross of Christ. And now that can overflow into the lives of others. So before we're able to seek to overcome evil with good, we're needing to admit our own evil and ask the Lord to overcome it with good. This is what becoming a Christian is like. It's admitting that I'm out of order. I'm out of the order of God. And I need to be brought back into the good order of God. And I can't do that except by the grace of God at the cross. 
And he forgives us of our sin, forgives us of our evil. And not only that, begins to transform us back into the goodness of God, the good order of God. So if you've not yet done that, that's step one. And then step two is to grow in the overflow of that goodness in our relationships, in the church, but also in the world. And so because of this, we can humble ourselves. We can refuse revenge. And we can love our enemies. Let me pray for us, and then uh, Noah's going to lead us in a final song. God, thank you for the church. It is a a beautiful mess, and it, it can so be some of the most challenging things that we we go through but man it is it is also the place where you do your finest work and you form disciples in a way that is so beautiful and you form a family that is so beautiful and loves each other well and serves each other well and lives on mission in the world and lord we want that here we want Ridgetop Church to be that. And, and Lord, you are the only one that can accomplish it. Um, but as we come under your word this morning, uh, we just say to you uh, that, that, that we want this. We want you to work this out in the power of the gospel uh, in our lives and as a community. And um, Lord, show us how to do it. Uh, show us how to do this in 2022 in Central Austin. Show us how to do this with the people that are gathering here uh, as this local body. Um, We need your wisdom. We need your help and power. Uh, And so we we look forward to what you're going to do, and we we are excited about what you have done so far. And so we we worship you in this moment as the one who is the the head of the church, the one who created the church, who sustains the church, and does so even now. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.